Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hello, it's Richard and Sue here with another edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And what an emotional month it has been. Since our last podcast, Antares has exploded, Spaceship Two has crashed, killing one of its test pilots, and Europe has landed on a comet. We'll be tackling both triumph and tragedy in space and also talking to the latest commander of a simulated Mars mission. Our guests are rocket expert David Wade from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, whose company had a stake in the ill-fated Antares. And we're also joined by space scientist Dr Sheila Kanani from the Royal Astronomical Society. First, though, a celebratory tune. Music composed by Vangelis and commissioned by the European Space Agency to celebrate Philae's historic landing on Comet 67P. Well, if you've been following our At Space Boffins Twitter feed, you'll know that I've been at ESA Mission Control in Germany, where I was working on the coverage of the Rosetta mission. Now, if you saw any of those short films during the many webcasts around the comet landing showing highlights or explaining the science, well, they were by me, and that was my voice. So not much time has passed since I got back in the UK, and I still, in fact, have a temporary Rosetta skin tattoo on my hand. Is that definitely temporary? I hope so, actually. (laughs) Despite a couple of showers, it's... still looks the same as when I put it on so yeah let's uh we'll have to see what happens there um but for me it was it was exciting it was emotional it was draining experience so you can imagine if that was what it was like for me what it must be like for the mission team and the scientists so let's pick it up with confirmation of separation of the fillet lander by the lead lander scientist Stefan Ulemek. We were together for 10 years, it's time to separate, and we successfully separated now. So the lander is uh, alone. It's on its own now. It's uh, due to gravity to bring it down in about seven hours from now, or six and a half, um, on ground for the landing. Well, the Philae lander has successfully separated from the Rosetta orbiter, and I'm in the main room where the press are gathered, where the announcements are being made, just by a stage which has got a model of the duck-like comet at one end on its side with a pinprick, tiny little model of Philae on its head. 
and uh, it's a simulated comet surface and who should be here but Professor Ian Wright from the Open University and Ian we've had you on the podcast before because of Ptolemy you must be relieved that at least this stage has happened particularly because overnight there were concerns uh, about one of the gas canisters that's going to damp down effectively the recoil, the rebound of the lander. Yeah, I was actually, uh, personally, uh, I was a little bit nervous about separation. If it hadn't have separated for whatever reasons, I mean, this, the mechanism has been in space for ten and a half years. You can't test it. I mean, you, you know, the first time you test it is the first time you use it. And it's worked, so that, that's a big relief. And I think we're in the, in the lap of the gods now. We're just gently wafting down to the surface. This is good. This is where we want to be. And certainly we've got to get down on the ground, and uh, we'd like to get down in as nice a position as possible. And there are several things that could happen there. Uh, we might hit something and topple over, or you know, any of those kind of things are, are imaginable. So, yeah, we've still got to keep our fingers well and truly crossed. I'm with Matt Taylor, who wears the, uh, the space scientist with the loudest shirts in the business, <laughs> I, I reckon. How are you feeling at, at this stage? relieved, uh, more excited than I was before. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be an exponential increase in excitement as we go through the different stages of the descent. We, we, we were a bit wobbly last night, um, a bit worried, not much sleep, um, but woke up in, in the right situation. We were go, and we continue to be go. We, we've, we've released a lander now. We're on the cusp now. It's really, we just wait. It's a long wait. Um, we hope to get this signal in a, in a few minutes to tell us that the lander's on its way. Could the lander actually land intact, though, if this cold gas pressure tank isn't working to dampen the rebound? In, pr- in principle, I-, I think it can still do it. It will just be a more exciting landing, I think. It's indicative of this whole mission. It, it-, it gives you a little bit of a, a curveball every so often, just to, just to, you know, maybe people will say that we've set this up to, make, to increase the tension just a little bit more, not that we need it. But in principle... The deployment, or as as the lander hits the surface, the screws actuate by themselves anyway. So under the force of gravity, they'll they'll actually screw themselves in. As you say, there is the, the impulse or the impact and the rebound factor. That's compounded by the fact that we're going to fire harpoons, so Newton's laws will force you in the opposite direction. However, if those harpoons do their job, and they should do, they'll start retracting afterwards. So even if we do bounce, the, the, the cables that attach to the harpoon will bring us back down to the comet's surface. So we've still got two of the other devices that will secure us working. It's a bit like a, a, a sort of sci-fi movie but without Bruce Willis at well, this point. Well, we'll see what Shiva shows us. Maybe Bruce is on, on the surface of the comet. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't be happier than what we are now. <laughs> we definitely confirmed that the lander is on the surface and i leave it to Stefan. I think it's up to him to judge how it's going now on the lander. Okay, so we are there, and Fila is talking to us. Uh, first things he told us was that the harpoons have been fired, rewound, and the landing gear um, has been moved inside, so we are sitting on the surface. Fila is talking to us. More data to come and, and to be analyzed right now. The flywheel is going down, uh, which it should do, of course. We are there. It's done its job. We are on the comet. Successful landing. I have Professor David Southwood and Professor Andrew Coates with me. Exhausted, thrilled. Over the moon was the phrase that came to mind, but I mean, it's not. We're way past the moon. This is uh, ah, we landed 
on uh, Titan 10 years ago that the Americans had to carry us there. Here, the mothership is ours, the little baby is ours, and the rocket that got us off the Earth is ours. So this is a big day for Europe, and since Britain is European, it's a great day for Britain. I just am so happy. That's good. I'm glad you've got some champagne in your hand as well. Andrew, I was rather touched by... um David Parker from the UK Space Agency not only paying tribute to UK scientists but also to the late Colin Pillinger it, it, it made me proud to be British there. Absolutely and Colin, you know, of course it was his instrument the, uh, the Ptolemy instrument which is now on the surface and it's so fantastic to be able to say that it is now on the surface. But yeah Colin was the inspiration behind that and of course the inspiration behind Beagle which unfortunately we didn't have the success with. But here actually getting success getting onto the surface of a comet, it's just a stunning success for European space science and space technology to have been able to do that. I mean, as David was saying, it's, it's all European, the whole thing, and, um, and, and getting to the surface, being able to make the measurements, do comparative measurements with the orbiter, just gives another dimension with what we can do with the, uh, with the science. So I'm just, just amazed. And I have to say, a bit surprised, because... Um, I was worried about it, you, about you it not and me working. Both. I think yeah. I chewed. I don't nail bite, but uh, uh, absolutely. To with, the quick with there. knowing, I mean, from the images, how undulating that surface is and how difficult it is to land. To get anything from the surface is just a huge success. So I think that's absolutely wonderful. Well, I'll let you both carry on drinking and uh, what, <laughs> great, sorry, great, drinking. great day, great day for engineering as well <laughs> yeah, as for science. Course. Absolutely, yeah. that's the point of the last remarks. Yeah, this is great engineering yeah. as well as great science. Yeah. And we never forget the engineers. Yeah, absolutely, science and technology together. That's that's the big success. All right. Well, congratulations and um, fingers crossed that the rest of the mission goes as smoothly. <laughs> Ian Wright, the, we know that Phil is on there. We know your instrument is now on a comet. How do you know if it's worked or not? Well, we've, uh, we, we were switched on nine minutes after landing, and uh, we've got data back, and I can say that we have measured a mass spectrum on a cometary surface. So, you know, we're one step towards some of the goals that we wish to achieve. That's incredible, isn't it? It is, it's amazing, yeah. I saw um, Andrea Accomazzo um, wipe away tears while he was in the control room. Do you feel very emotional about it? No, I'm, I'm a different kind of person, but, but those guys have been You've got under... a stiff upper lip, is that what you're saying? Well, uh, yes, I suppose I'm a Brit, you know. Uh, <laughs> but those guys have been under intense pressure for weeks. Uh, and I, they have done an amazing job. I mean, I feel, I feel bad enough after today, you know. <laughs> the Open University's Ian Wright on the first data from the Ptolemy instrument. You also heard ESA's Matt Taylor, Andrew Coates from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, Flight Director Andrea Akamazzo there, just briefly, Stefan Ulemek and David Southwood, who's former head of science for ESA and now head of the Royal Astronomical Society, which is where Sheila's from. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there you have it. It was funny listening, wasn't it, to all those things about all the... The, the emphasis before uh, landing was all this gas pressure and it may rebound. And, of course, we now know it didn't just land once. It landed three times. <laughs> what I really liked about... What I really liked about the way it was done and the way it was, way it was covered, it was all so so human and you were following events you could see things not quite working out it wasn't done as some big nasa stagey event it was actually nice to see behind what, the scenes hold on what you're saying is nasa's very slick and we're a 
we're, and I say we because I was working on that, we're slightly amateurish no, I love that because I felt we were getting a real insight into the tensions of what was going on. Seeing those pictures live, and they're still on YouTube, of the flight controllers talking among themselves, looking at the screens, trying to work out whether it had yeah. landed or not landed, what was going on. To get that insight, I thought was fantastic. Were well, you watching it, David, Sheila? Absolutely. I mean, really inspirational project. And despite being slightly shambolic, look what's been achieved. <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely amazing. It's one of the true historic space missions. It is. And I think also watching videos like, for example, Monica Grady celebrating, and you said that human impact. And ESA did a really good job with things like the cartoon that they released. They just made even the spacecraft really human. And, you know, um, I think it was David Southwood in that in that interview who said it was the, the mother and the baby and everything European. And it just that human element is what makes it. They they got the, the sort of build up very good as well, mm. because there was only recently that massively unbelievable Hollywood production ambition film. Uh, well, you're pulling your nose up there. You weren't that keen on it. Well, um, I've seen it. <laughs> I, I was going that's to smack a da- That's by a damning review, yeah, isn't it? No, no, no. The science is really review. good. And there are, there's, there's not often that there's... Um, a film that does have very good science but i don't know that was sci that was sci-fi more more than anything else but it did have more drama than a hollywood film it did because we weren't sure it was going to land who would expect that it would bounce off and land over a kilometer Mm. away from the original landing site then it's landed on what thing is the rim of a crater it might not even be upright no, well, I think on its one, way, one, one foot's in up, the air. Yeah. So it, it's, the, the beauty uh, of it is, if anyone ever lands on a comet again, they'll be the fourth person to land on a comet, won't they? <laughs> because Phil has landed, the Europe has landed, what, three, three times, times on a comet? <laughs> That's true, yes, that is uh, absolutely true. I also liked, I mean, there, there have been NASA scientists working on this because, like every mission, it's an international collaboration and you have some NASA American PIs on some of the uh, in, instruments. And I love the fact that there was I think what's his name Jim Green anyways the NASA guy who came on and you had the Europeans being fairly uh you know yes we're really pleased this was great yeah we're very happy you know Andrea looked emotional and then on comes the NASA guy and he went how audacious yeah, how did. risky and in a way it was funny it took a NASA guy to big up Isa <laughs> and I thought yeah. thank you thank you thank you mm. that you needed that oomph you needed that confidence of achievement to be sort of slammed across because there's no doubt about it it is an incredible Mm. achievement because it's the stuff that's on there their plans from 20 years ago the technology is from over 10 years ago the cameras think of how our phone cameras alone have changed in terms of processing and the quality of the image from our own mobiles from 10 years ago so it's outdated. And we were pushing the technology to its limits, really. I mean, this was a solar-powered mission. You know, this wasn't some <laughs> radioactive thermoelectric generator like we are seeing on some of the NASA missions mm. into deep space. This was the first deep space solar-powered mission. Some really amazing technology. What has been achieved with a very, you know, low, low co- well, relatively low cost, low technology spacecraft is truly amazing. It's and, proud to be European right now. <laughs> and, and Sheila, um, it does show the importance of long-term yeah. missions and thinking long-term and continuous funding for that. Because if you Definitely. cut funding now, now, even if you're going to 
have funding again in five years' time. You've lost those missions 10, 15 years along the, the line. Yeah, well, the minute you start going anywhere further than the moon, it has to be a long-term mission. And the planning that goes into them... I mean, we heard from An- Andrew Coates before, and I worked with him with the Cassini mission, um, and that, again, was a, a very long-term mission. And it's still running, and it's still so popular, and it's still sending amazing photos back. And that was sort of thought about in the 1980s and, and built in the 90s. You know, it's just... They have to be long-term missions while we've got this sort of technology. The lander was always going to be the cherry on the cake (laughs) because for the next year, the science is ongoing. This mission Mm. isn't over now just because it's landed. That's not it. And even if with the solar panels and you don't get the, the what was hoped to recharge the batteries and if if the lander does conk out within 24 hours of this podcast being recorded, you've still got a year of a, a orbiter science. So there will yeah. still be measurements and images mm. and science. So we are going to learn an awful lot about the origins of our solar system. And hopefully, which is one of their main aims is, you know, water, did water. Yeah come from comets to earth and help kickstart life so they're big questions they are and even even if nothing comes of anything the the amazing feat of engineering i mean someone said to me the analogy is like chucking a football across a garden and trying to simultaneously land a frog from a helicopter onto that football and that's what we've achieved <laughs> that, that's a crazy analogy <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, a crazy most ridiculous analogy, analogy. because <laughs> that happens yeah, all the time does, yeah. um, I think, so does landing on a comet <laughs> I, think, I think we should talk about one of the the few controversies that's come out of this matt taylor's shirt and there's a lot of hatred for matt taylor out there oh. right now on twitter which i feel so sorry for the the shirt he was wearing at the time when i interviewed him just after separation was a different shirt um i must admit i was uh you know in an ob van outside mission control sleep deprived like most people mm-hmm. and when i saw that shirt because for the early morning one he'd, he'd had it covered up he had like a sweatshirt over mm-hmm. it he obviously took it off for the, the main one and when i saw it on the screen i my jaw dropped i went oh i had an intake of of breath How and when i saw him it? afterwards when i saw him afterwards it was 1950s like betty page style pinups and when i saw him um, uh afterwards so you know in person was talking i could see it in close up and there were these pneumatically busted women like i say like cartoon pinups no different from a sort of marvel comic today basically any female superhero today is is drawn like that but wearing stockings and it was designed by a woman it was designed by the wife of the man who did all his tattoos so it was designed by a woman it had a retro feel and i'm you know you know this richard i'm i'm the first one to jump down people's throats if i think they're being sexist or what have you I thought the shirt was eye-opening, retro, fine, but completely inappropriate for the for that specific occasion. So I thought, okay, fine shirt, that's that's fine. I know it's a style and thing, but the wrong shirt for the wrong occasion. And I feel sorry for Matt because he's not sexist. He is a nice guy. He is a good guy. He is passionate about his subject. It was just. A mistake, but then Issa perhaps should have said, uh, "Matt, no." 
Well, they I know you like tattoos, no. didn't they? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, 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 his tattoos I feel for are, him. His tattoos are pretty cool, though. Yeah. Uh, I think the other controversy, is it filet or filet? Oh, I know. I said both there, and I should know better. Because I've had it drummed it? into me. It's supposed to be filet. Oh. Like, I like Americans say, I'll have a steak and I'll have a filet. <laughs> um, but no, it's actually filet for some reason, even though the Latin A-I-A is, you would normally say filet, but... I've heard both on the BBC. Oh, it's, you know, it's so it's hard. exactly in the same bulletin. So hard. everyone's grappling. with Oh, it's that. like yeah. Churyumov Gerasimenko. It's Ger- oh, I'm say that Ger- again. Say that again. Churyumov Gerasimenko. But then the uh, Monica, the anchor at the ESA coverage, was going Churyumov Gerasimenko. It was like a hot, and I was thinking, hold on, I've been pronouncing it. I've been told it's a soft G, and he was actually there. The astronomer who uh, co-founded it spotted it at the same time as. Uh, as Gerasimenko, Mrs. Gerasimenko, they didn't say her name, actually. I couldn't remember her first name, but uh, it was like his Mrs. Gerasimenko. Now, there's a little bit of sexism <laughs> yeah. there. Um, but, yes, she was, she was on there. So it was lovely to see him being hugged by the uh, mission team because that's quite a culmination mm. from Discovery. I did notice Richard was very carefully saying 67p in his introduction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you noted that, did you? I, I really and, struggle. Uh, <laughs> Frankly, I struggled with celebratory. <laughs> I'm about to fact I've managed that twice. That, that is that is incredible. Uh, we will of course be following uh, Rosetta on uh, Twitter and Facebook. And uh, still to come in the Space Boffins podcast, I meet a Mars base commander. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, and our blog, spaceboffins.com. Now, a phrase we've heard all too frequently this month is "space is hard." Got main engines at 108 percent. Baby, I'm powered on. And that is the point on the 28th of October, the unmanned Antares rocket blew up just a few seconds after leaving the launch pad with supplies for the International Space Station. Then on the 31st of October, the news came from Mojave that Spaceship Two had crashed, killing one of the pilots. Well, this is obviously a very tough time for uh, everybody who works at Virgin Galactic, uh, who works for a spaceship company and who works for Scale Composites. And most importantly, our thoughts remain with the families of the brave, scaled pilots and all those who've been affected by this tragedy. That's Richard Branson. Well, the loss of Spaceship Two and Antares, two privately operated spacecraft, proves, I think, that not only is space hard, but trying to make space travel routine is even harder. Well, David, you've got a very much a vested interest in Antares. Uh, you partly insured Antares. And it, it's essentially your job to decide how risky these these spacecraft are. I mean, how do you even start doing that? Well, we, we review all of the engineering analysis. Um, we have some very detailed presentations. Um, we get to see all of this hardware. Um, and we evaluate each risk from the ground up. You know, space insurance is very different to other classes of insurance. Mm-hmm. We cannot rely on statistics. It's not like car insurance where you know that 10 million cars are driving down the road and so many are going to crash. You know, we really do have to evaluate this from first risk. So it's a, it's a very engineering-led discipline. Um, yeah, and we know that these things are going to happen. That's exactly why the space insurance market exists. But you, you, it's fortunate for you because your background is, as an academic, who knows all about launch vehicles. <laughs> yes, I, I do have a, an engineering background, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons I went into this job. Um, yeah, 
it, it is a fascinating uh, industry, the space insurance business. You're mixing a little bit of the engineering, a bit of the finance, a bit of the legal. It, it's great bringing all those skills together. So before it was launched then, how would you have rated Antares as a, as a, as a risk? Yeah, we had some presentations. We found out, you know, we were told about the rockets um, the, and the engines in particular. We saw a lot of test details. And yeah, the rocket engine itself, which there's already some press reports, it will take some time for the final failure investigation. This is this to rocket, uh, a Russian rocket. The Russian rocket, the NK-33, or once it's been taken into America, rebranded with some new updated software, some new equipment on there. It's called the AJ-26. And there are some, some indications already that it was the turbo pump of the rocket that failed. So the main pump driving the fuels into the combustion chamber of the engine. And there have been a couple of problems with those turbo pumps on, te- on test stands. So it was a risk. You know, it was known about. But it appeared that you know, it was understood. Um, yeah, and we know from these test stand failures that that's what they're for. They're there for us to learn. You know, we believe that we understood the risk and something's happened on this flight. And we're going to learn more from this, um, this, this event. But it's the complexity of these machines, though, isn't it? That, that, that's the, the issue. I mean, even something, a relatively straightforward launcher like Antares, is still vastly complex with, with many different sections, with the rockets from one place, the main uh, stage one from somewhere else, the stage two from somewhere else, the capsule at the top that's been designed from scratch. It's bits and pieces. Yeah, that's certainly an issue, yeah. Bringing all of those components together. How does the whole system work? That is certainly an issue. But it's not necessarily the complexity. I mean, a lot of these engines are you know, relatively straightforward in comparison to, say, the Space Shuttle's engine. It's the it's the sensitivity to quality control and the slightest variation away from pristine quality that really causes the problems. And I suppose with Antares, I mean, you know, no, bottom line is no one died in Antares. Um, a test pilot did die in, in spaceship Two, you're you're dealing with a whole new level of risk when you've got humans involved, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. And Spaceship Two, um, yeah, there there was an example where yeah, the risk they believed they understood the risks. Yeah, you know, they knew that there was a risk in unlocking the uh, the lock that controlled the feather mechanism at that point. Yeah, you know, it was actually specified in the in the pilot's guidelines that that should not be unlocked until one point four, Mac one point four. And it was so, opened at one, wasn't it? That's one. right. Yeah. So there was a they knew that there was a risk that it should not be locked unlocked before Mac one point four. Um, something happened, it did unlock. What they didn't understand was the risk associated that that feather manoeuvre might self-initiate. It might start to move without another input. And that was where the risk wasn't truly understood and wasn't mitigated. Funnily enough, when we first interviewed Virgin Galactic on this podcast, must be almost two and a half years ago, maybe something like that, that was the, a point we were talking about was the feathering because that's a sort of single point failure issue with that and a completely new design for uh, any spacecraft. Uh, yeah, in, in, in theory, it's a very good design. It's a very simple design. Um, and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it if it's deployed at the right point. You know, it created that high drag configuration to allow that vehicle to be relatively simple and yet still accomplish its, its mission. The problem is that there was nothing there that prevented them you know, from having this self-initiated um, event once they'd unlocked it. I mean, we've had several people on podcasts when talking about... Um, not just Virgin, but the, the the whole this whole new generation of independently produced space planes. They've all said, "Well, people will die." It, it, they've accepted it, and we were quite shocked when they first said it. But then you think, "Well, actually, 
they're right when you think of the early days of space flight people did die you don't want them to die obviously but it's and, and not just space flight flight as well anything that's new and involves people and machinery unfortunately there is a risk and people do die that's right. And I think the problem is when you're talking the difference between a professional astronaut who maybe understands the risks fully and somebody who is a fair-paying participant uh, wanting to go on this for a fun ride. You, you don't expect those same, that same level of risk. No, and it just makes you think about the bravery of the test pilots. I mean, it's an t- awful thing for their friends and family. But what? You know, it's admiration really for what for what they do, because somebody has to always test, be it planes or spacecraft, for the for the first time, and they must know that. And well, they're probably knowing most pilots. They probably don't even think about it, do they? they it's just part of their job, isn't it? I yeah. Think, yeah. But uh, Sheila, it shows what a distance we have to go from making space flight uh, normal to making it routine. Yeah, definitely. But like like you said, it it's. It's been the same for for flight. It was the same for for ships. You know, when we, people were discovering Australia and, and America, and people die, unfortunately. But that it's kind of the sacrifice that human beings have to make to to explore further further avenues. And David, I suppose the key here is that the backers, the investors, the insurers, the regulators mustn't lose their nerve with these new projects. Mm. That's right. I mean, the you know. It, it, it is going to take a while before they're flying again. Um, so how deep are the investors' pockets? Are they going to keep it funded um, to see it through? Um, and I think, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it is very sad that the pilot died. People will die on these missions. But again, it's about understanding those risks. And only you should only ex- be exposing yourself to those risks if you truly understand the risks that you're taking. Well, if space tourism is a relatively small step, then the next giant leap for mankind could be a mission to Mars. So what's it going to be like for those first pioneers? To try to find out, the Mars Society has been operating a simulated Mars base in the desert in Utah, USA. Astronauts live there just as they would on Mars. They even put on spacesuits when they go outside. I spoke to the current commander of the station, software engineer Digby Tarvin, just before he set off for life on Mars. Our objective is to show a manned exploration of Mars is something which is possible and we do have the technology to do it now if we have the the will to pursue it. And what do you do in the desert? You've got this base in the desert in in Utah. What actually happens there? The habitat in Utah is constructed to uh, represent the type of habitat that would be placed on Mars according to the Mars Direct mission profile. So it looks like the top part of a landed spaceship. It's a two-storey cylinder. What we do there is to try and perform real serious science under the strictures that would apply if you were really working in a hostile environment like the surface of Mars. The idea is to show that humans in that environment can work productively, effectively and safely. What do you learn from this, both as an individual, but also in terms of what we can learn about living, working on Mars? It gives us a way to convince ourselves that all the people that that say that this sort of mission wouldn't be practical and people wouldn't be able to survive in those conditions, that they're wrong, that we can. And a group of people who are sufficiently motivated can survive in 
relative isolation for long periods of time under what a lot of people would consider fairly rudimentary conditions. You said the technology is available now. We could do this now. Do do you think that is going to happen? The technology certainly does exist, and it has existed for for some time. Werner von Braun, at the end of the Apollo missions, he was all set to to push on to Mars within 10 or 20 years. There is simply a, a lack of will on the part of government. Those that do explore the idea, they become a little overambitious and plan what I think um, Robert Zubrin in his book called a um, Battlestar Galactica mission, which really does end up pushing the cost to the extent where the people who aren't so enthusiastic can say, well, this is out of the question, we can't afford it. But if you're really keen and you use the technology that we have, it is possible, certainly pushes the technology to the limit, but no more so than, than the Apollo era. And we achieved an awful lot then, and the only difference was that people were more motivated. What about life in the habitat? How do you all get on? Do you have a command structure? Is it a bit like Star Trek where you have a command, you're telling people what to do, or is it a more democratic structure? And have you have you learned about working together in those sorts of environments? It's certainly not, not a, a Star Trek-style military environment. It's a small group, all highly motivated, all very interested in what we're doing, and it really doesn't take any effort to manage them. Being the nominal commander is a privilege, but really I'm sure the in most cases the HAB would, would carry on without anybody having to, to take command. There's only, just needs to be somebody who, who keeps an eye on the schedule and the program and makes sure that, that those things that have to happen do happen. And what sort of people does it attract? It, it attracts people from... Many varied backgrounds from all over the world. The main thing that uh, we have in common is a passionate interest in science, spaceflight, and manned spaceflight in particular. We want to to see this mankind progressing as far as it can, rather than just resting on our laurels and perhaps trying to make a, a more comfortable life. Why on earth, though, do you want to go to Mars? This dusty, rusty, desolate, airless, bleak environment? Well, you could look at it that way, but I I think Mars and many other planets have a beauty all their own. Mars is the obvious first choice because it's it's the most accessible. Mars is a full-fledged planet which has the, the capacity, the resources to support in the long term, a self-sustaining human colony. And I think there's really nothing greater that we could aspire towards than to establish our first self-sufficient off-Earth colony because at that point, mankind will really have achieved a sort of redundancy where we are far less likely to disappear from the universe. Once you have a second base, otherwise we'll always, no matter how many precautions we take, there'll always be some disaster that could really eliminate us from history. A sobering thought from Mars Society Commander Digby Tarvin. I mean, you know, I, I'm no great fan of living on Mars. I do not want to go Mars. I think it was fairly clear from that uh, interview <laughs> that I think Mars is a pretty horrible place. But he does have a point, though, doesn't he, Sheila, about this being important for humanity, that we could get wiped out tomorrow by an asteroid or whatever. 
I think we need to practice, and Mars is an obvious choice, um, obviously, in, in our solar system. If we can do it on Mars, and then we have the technology to go to other solar systems, then in theory we can do it on other solar systems as well. David? Yeah, I think it was um, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, um, the grandfather of spaceflight in the late 1800s, said um, Earth is the cradle of mankind, but man cannot live in the cradle forever. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we need to expand our wings. We need to move new places. Um, it's all very inspirational stuff. I do. I am very concerned that the first time we'll ever really test the psychology, and mm. you can't simulate the psychology of the effect of leaving the planet behind. I'm worried that that might be a bigger issue than any of us are really uh, bearing in mind here. Yeah, we've we've discussed that before, haven't we? And and, and Richard's had um, first-hand experience uh, of this because you've been to Antarctica several times, and it's normally, I believe, the chef who goes a bit mental. There was an incident. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there was. Well, I mean, there has been an incident in recent years when pretty much a base rebelled against um, their headquarters. So you know they were getting so fed up with being told what to do by people back in uh, the home country mm. that you know they were so far away and said, "Well, that, that's you know you and don't, you so don't understand." Well. You know, it's we the are isolation, isolated. isn't yeah. it? So there are lessons you can take from Antarctica, but yeah, Mars is a whole different ballgame. I that's... was trying to think of what it must be like, I and mean, we recently we were in Utah ourselves. Stunning, unbelievably stunning location, alien-like. You feel as if you're on another planet. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to live there. I was just thinking, (laughs) oh, yeah, it was great. We popped into more leafy areas like Colorado and things like that. And you're thinking, hold on, if if I was just going to live in a little metal box box (laughs) in that environment all the time, Mm. that's tough, isn't it? Like you say, that's... That is tough. It's also very worrying to hear that the person with access to sharp knives is the person in Antarctica (laughs) who might go mad. (laughs) Yes. The thing with Mars as well, the the things that you can't plan for, for example, on Mars, the the sky's red in the daytime and the sun, when the sun sets, it goes blue, which is the opposite to to Earth and you can't plan for things like that. Gosh, I never even thought of that. It's amazing. It it does also remind me of um, Interstellar. Yeah. Um, which has the same themes and the same thought and about survival mm. of, of the human race. So it's something that is a bit of a zeitgeist at the moment, isn't it? It makes every... And that's one of, I think, the pluses of the film is that it doesn't make it too science fictiony in a way in that you see the hardships and the difficulties of long-haul travel and the effects of relativity yeah. with people back on Earth if you do travel close to the speed of, of light. And, uh, yeah, you you don't come out of it thinking, I'd love to live on another planet. You come out of it thinking, whoa, that, as we've all said, space is hard. Space travel is hard. Colonisation will be even harder. Well, thank you very much to our guests, David Wade from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, the company that has supported our podcast from the very beginning. Yay! <laughs> and Sheila Kanani, space scientist at the Royal Astronomical Society. We're also supported by ABSL Space Products and we're produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientist. And we've never done this before, but I would like to have a dedication here to one of our younger listeners, Rufus. Hello, Rufus. And all our new Twitter followers. We now have more than 2,000, which is very exciting. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We'll be back in December with more from The Final Frontier. Thanks for listening. And we'll leave you with more from the latest internet musical sensation, sort of, the sounds made by Comet 67P.